thankful for the opportunity to preach God's Word to you today. But I must confess to you, I've preached many sermons, not as many as Mike. I haven't been a pastor for a long time, but I have preached many sermons in my life and prepared for many teachings since the Lord saved me. And this one today has been the most difficult because though I know this truth and though I know it to be certain and though it is not hard conceptually to understand, what I have to preach today, what what is said in God's Word, is extremely difficult for sinners to accept and to hear. So in our passage today, we will see how Paul summarizes the condition of humanity. From the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans, we have a comprehensive and detailed indictment of the condition of humanity. Last week, Mike pointed to the fact that the Jews did have a very real and distinct advantage over the Gentiles. They were the recipients of the law of God and they received the promises of God. In this, they do have an advantage. They had the written and explicit words of the Creator God. This advantage, as we discussed last week, did not absolve the Gentiles, those who were not Jews, who didn't have the written law from the penalty of breaking the law. Paul plainly says in Romans chapter 2, verse 12, for all have sinned with all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In our passage today, Paul solidifies the truth that despite whatever advantage the Jew has over the Gentile or the Gentiles' lack of having the oracles of God, that all of humanity, every single individual, has the same ultimate problem. We are sinners that justly deserve the wrath of Almighty God. And no matter what family, town, state, or nation we come from, We are universally, outside of Christ, under the wrath of God. In spite of the universal nature of sin and of God's condemnation of every human being born of Adam, despite of the reality of our existence as sinners in Adam, people think themselves to be merely imperfect and mostly good. If you're familiar with the ministry of Ray Comfort, you may be familiar with what he calls the way of the Master. 
Essentially, this is an evangelistic method that focuses on showing people that they're not nearly as good as they think themselves to be. He walks them through a series of questions derived from the Ten Commandments. He would ask a person this. He says, do you think you're a good person? And the person may respond and say, yeah, of course. I've never murdered anyone or harmed a child or stole something of really great value. But Mr. Comfort would then ask them these questions. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything? Taken anything that isn't yours? Have you ever used God's name in vain? Have you ever looked at a person with lustful intent? And that person, if they're honest, some of them aren't honest if you've ever seen these videos, but if that person is honest, they're going to say, yes, of course. Hasn't everyone? To every one of those questions. Ray's response to this person, so you mean to tell me, you, you good person, that you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous adulterer. On the great day of judgment, brothers and sisters, everyone else was doing it will no more be accepted by God than it was by your parents. And as we consider the sinfulness of sin, let's first pray before we go to the text this morning. Father in heaven, I know that this day, if it were not for Your loving kindness towards me, that even the words that I speak today would mean nothing to me. I would reject them and shake my fists at them. And I am so thankful for Your mercy wherein that You have saved a sinner such as myself. And that You use sinners such as Your people to speak and proclaim the good news of the Gospel. Because as we see in our text today, despite what we think of ourselves and what we thought of ourselves before we knew who You were, we are not good. And we are in the midst of a great darkness. But I thank You so much that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it and that You are saving Your people. Saving those who at one time were at war with You through Your loving kindness. And Lord, we ask this You as we, as Your people go to Your Word, that You would give us grace and that the Spirit would give us understanding and that we may see and understand from where we were delivered from and that if there be a person here today who has not been delivered, who has not trusted in Christ Jesus upon Your grace and mercy alone, given eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, I pray that You would convict them and that they would be able to understand and see their true condition. That whatever solid ground they think upon which they stand, it is as thin air. Lord Jesus, help us as we go to Your Word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we go to our text this morning, I want to outline the way that we're going to look at our text. We're going to look at our text in five different key areas. Uh, the first being 
First point this morning is that all humanity is under sin. Our second point, sin on the inside. Our third point this morning, sin in the mouth. Our fourth point, sin on the hands. And our last point, all humanity is guilty. As we go to our text, let's stand in the honor of reading God's holy word. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the Word of the Lord. You may be seated. Paul here begins by summarizing the argument that he has been making over the last two chapters. He asks the questions, are we any better off? Are we any better off? And when Paul asks this, he refers both to his immediate audience, the church of Rome, and whom he is writing to, and to his Jewish brethren. Despite whatever advantage or disadvantage we try to claim, we are not better off when it comes to this thing called sin. All of us, every one of us, is under sin. No human escapes. This has been the case since our first parents' sin. Since sin entered in, all of humanity has been infected with a fatal disease. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, you have a sin problem. Paul summarizes the argument that he has been given, that he's been making, and no matter what background, just like I've mentioned, no matter who raised you, no matter what happened to you in your childhood, there is something you share with all humanity. You are a sinner. Like Christian in the great book, The Pilgrim's Progress, without Christ and before Christ, we walk under the great burden of sin. Paul says this in verse 9. We're not any better. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the burden of sin, are under sin. And to demonstrate what he is saying here, 
this universal playing field that He sets out before us. He strings together a series of Old Testament quotations from various places throughout the Scripture. We won't go to each one of those individually for there's really not time to go in delve delve into them. But He pulls a plethora of verses here together for us and shows us without even quoting the Ten Commandments, the condition of humanity. And this brings us to point number two, sin on the inside. Let's look at verses uh, 10 through 12 once again. He says this, As it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Paul begins by pointing to where our outward manifestations of sin originate. None of us come into the world with an inherent righteousness or we don't come into this world morally neutral people. We enter this world as sinners unrighteous to the core. It is our nature to reject this idea that we are born with unrighteousness and in unrighteousness. We like to think that we're all born good and that exposure to the world, the flesh, and the devil is what corrupts us. But the Scripture is quite clear. As Paul points forward here, none is righteous. And in case that didn't make any sense, no, not one. Universal negative. None. And in case... You're tempted to think even further that Paul is just being hard on us. He's just being hard on humanity. That maybe this is some sort of theology that he's come up with. I want to look for a moment. You don't have to turn there, but write it down. Genesis 6-5. Three chapters away from the fall. This is what the Lord's words about humanity were. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Reading Genesis 6-5, even out loud, is not going to gain you many friends in this world. And if we're honest, even as Christians, the truth of our inherent sinfulness can be a difficult pill even now for us to swallow. Three chapters, y'all. We rather think, and we would rather like to think that people are just trying to find their way. They're sinners, but they can't help it. The Scripture stands in stark contrast to this well-thinking when it comes to those who are outside of Christ, which is where we all once were. And Paul continues, no one understands, no one seeks for God. The world is seeking something, but they are not seeking God. You may have a deep understanding of science and all the arts and yet be the most ignorant person in the world with respect to righteousness. You may search space, you may search biology, you may search construction science, you may search any medical science you could ever think of, and yet be the most foolish man who's ever lived. 
Knowledge of righteousness is not learned like an abstract concept, but is taught by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. He says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Greeks. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In this passage, Paul labors the point that the work of Christ in accomplishing the salvation of His people is not something that is discerned through reason or wisdom or well-seeking, but by the power of God. And when it comes to knowing righteousness, the wisdom of the world couldn't wake its way out of a brown paper bag. The natural man outside of Christ may seek to rid himself of the guilt brought on by the conscience that God has given him. But he's not seeking God. They may seek what only God can provide, but they do not seek after God Himself. This unrighteousness affects everything and completely hinders the ability to do even one good thing, rendering them useless with respect to righteousness. Look again. All have turned aside. This is verse 12. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not one. Everything that man touches is tainted. This is not to say that a person outside of Christ can't do a good act like feeding the poor or you know, alleviating people's needs or, or whatever. That's not to minimize that. that. Those are good things, right? But though the action may be good, the motivation of the action of the person who is outside of Christ is something other than the love and glory of God. And this we see here. The sinfulness of sin is manifested in our hearts. This brings us to our third point this morning. Sin in the mouth. Look again with me at verse 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. As the old adage says, garbage in, garbage out. Our internal lack of righteousness does not just stay internal, but it comes on the outside. Paul has made this case that with respect to righteousness, we are internally, within our beings, full of sin, garbage. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 12, 
You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure bring forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What is on the inside will come out to the outside. Our words are like a window to our soul. And as James said in his letter, he says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. The conditions of the souls of men without Christ are constantly on display. Paul points us to the fact that we can't even speak rightly. Our words are like an open grave consuming those around us. Brothers and sisters, the world can't even go to Cracker Barrel and wait 15 minutes until they're waiting, baited in the tongue to say whatever it is they think they ought to say in order to accomplish what they want. We bite our tongue ready to strike others like a viper. And then when we can't hold it any longer out of our mouth like a broken floodgate, we spew curses and bitterness, showing forth the condition of our hearts. A brief survey of just the top 40 pop charts should be enough to show you that's what's on the inside of humanity. We are blind to think that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Everybody thinks that's not true until it's their words coming out. James speaks of the tongue. It's a consuming fire. Thus, the sinfulness of sin is shown not only in our hearts, but in our mouths. That brings us to the fourth point. Look with me again at verse 15 through 18. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul continues his argument by pointing to the fact that what is in the heart and on the tongue eventually makes it to the hands and to the feet. Words are an indication of how we really feel and eventually of what will motivate us to action. The feet of man and this world are swift to shed blood Look around. Just look outside. Turn on the news. Can you say that's not the case? Again, quote James. I think he has much to say about this topic. James chapter 4 demonstrates kind of how this works. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, 
So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We cannot please the false God of our own desire, and so we act in accordance to what is within. Nations fight against nation out of greed. Citizens kill their children out of a desire to liberate themselves. They don't seek peace. Paul finishes his quotations with a sharp but true indictment. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The world is full of a bunch of practical atheists. No matter what they say they believe, what God or false God they say they worship, maybe they say they worship Jesus Christ. But practically, they're an atheist because they live with no fear of God before their eyes. They live as if He doesn't exist or that they will never have to stand before Him. However, the Scripture is clear that everyone will be held accountable to God. Everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the works of our hands will be made evident before Him, even every careless word. Here we see the sinfulness of sin shown not only in our hearts and on our tongues, but on our hands. And just like the book of Judges, everyone who did what was right in their own eyes, there was no fear of God before their eyes. This brings us to our final point. Looking at verses 19 to 20, all humanity is guilty. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul sums up these charges by pointing us back to the law. A topic and a discussion that he has labored to discuss throughout the first chapters of the book of Romans. And I refer you again back to Romans chapter 2 that I read at the very beginning. Regardless of whatever sense Paul is referring to here when he speaks of the law in verse 19, whether that's the law of Moses, the Torah, or it's the law that is written upon our hearts, he's established that everybody in somewhat form or fashion is under a law, under the law of God. Whether you have the advantage of growing up with the Word of God, or you grew up in a nation in which the Word of God was not known, you are accountable to God. And as we begin, we have now demonstrated, as we began, we have now demonstrated that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And based on the charges and the arguments presented, when you stand before God who is holy, righteous, good, and true on the day of judgment and the charges are read, what can be done to absolve you from your guilt? 
Paul is demonstrating using even the very words of God that we can't even think, speak, or act in such a way as to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. This is why he says this, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. No matter how you want to define law, no matter how some people in town may define what the law is, the law applies. And if the righteous requirement of God is perfection, and it is, in Matthew 5.48, He says this, Jesus says this, You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Of course, doing, work right, doing what the law requires is a good thing, but we can't even do that. We can't even think right. We can't even go to, the, to a restaurant without having curses and bitterness upon our heart. We can't even do good outside of Christ. We can't justify ourselves. It's foolish to think that we could justify ourselves by doing things with filthy hands. On that day, every mouth will be stopped because no one, none, can claim that they are perfect. No human being will be justified by works of the law. The words of this sermon have been difficult. A, a stinging indictment of the condition of humanity that does not fear God. When we read these words, we are confronted with, with a great darkness. A darkness that pours out from the, our, the hearts of men. If left under this indictment, it would lead to a sense of hopelessness and dread. I thank God this is not where the story ends. I'm jealous that Mike gets to preach verse 21 through 26 next week. Because the picture that Paul paints here is not at all pretty. And it has not at all been easy to preach. Because even in preparation, the heart wants to kick back. When we read these words, we are confronted with that darkness. But thanks be to God, there was one who came. A light shining in the darkness. The Lord Jesus lived perfectly unlike any person in this room. As our confession says, this, chapter 8, section 5, the Lord Jesus, by His perfect obedience and sacrifice of Himself, which He, through the eternal Spirit, once offered up unto God, has fully satisfied the justice of His Father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given to Him. If you're in Christ today, then your hope on that final day is not anything in and of yourself, but it is the Lord Jesus whom we claim, who brings our justification through His perfect obedience and sacrifice of Himself. And because of this, we have 
not been left to our state of sin and misery in which we once came. But You were bought and justified us by grace. A gift. When we read this passage in Romans 3, and as we have become acquainted with the sinfulness of sin, thank God that He did not leave His people in their sins. If you're here today and you feel the weight of guilt upon your shoulders, and as you sit there under the weight of sin, will you entrust yourself to the Savior who can take the great burden of sin upon your back and give you robes of righteousness? Will you have faith this day and call upon His name? He is able to save to the uttermost. And in case you walked in here this morning and thought yourself good, I hope as you leave this place, you don't still think that you are. Because the truth is, is you're not. None of us are. But we have a good Savior. Believer, this morning, surely you have been reminded of who you used to be. Surely you have been reminded of the time that you were under the weight of your sins. You were at one time an adulterer. You were at one time an idolater. You were full of greed. You were a drunkard. You were a reviler. And the key word here, were. Such were some of you, Paul says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You are now an example of a sinner saved out of the great darkness. And may today, as you are confronted with the sinfulness of sin, be encouraged to walk in the light of a new creation and turn away from the ways of which you used to be. And as we end this morning, I want to end by reading the words of a great hymn. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those that I am not like can earn myself a place with You. O God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only You. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, No tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by Him. And He alone can give me rest. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank You for today. I thank You for the sustaining grace that You have given me to preach this text. And actually, the sustaining grace that You've given me to even breathe one moment as a sinner. I pray this day that if there is a person here who does not know Christ, that they would trust in You 
because we're not good. And no matter how we say that everybody's not perfect, you have given no caveats. Your standard is perfection. But thanks be to God. Thank You, Lord, that You came the perfect One. Taking my imperfection. Exchanging my filthy robes for filthy rags, for robes of righteousness. Be with Your people this day. And may they be encouraged from the depth that they were delivered from. Lord, we know that You're able to save to the uttermost. And as we sing our final hymn, we pray that You would be glorified this day. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.